All right, everybody. Hello. Hello. Um, feel free to bounce your legs, you know. Uh, I am, uh, if you, those of you who've been around know I'm pretty easily distractible, but I promise uh, if you need to get up and go get some hot chocolate, I won't make a comment about it. Okay? If you need to get up and, like, if the whole sermon, you just need to go, do it. <laughs> okay? Do whatever you need to do. Um, I, I'm making a promise. It'll be hard to keep, but I will uh, not get distracted by that. All right? <laughs> cool. Cool. Thanks for being here tonight, guys. Um, we are continuing as we talk about Bethlehem-shaped theology. Uh, it's Christmas season after all, isn't it? We got the Christmas trees up and everything. It's all festive and pretty. It's cold. You're all bundled up. I see some Christmas sweatshirts, sweaters, sweatshirts. I don't know what the right term is. Um, I'm glad you guys are here. I'm glad we get to talk about the realities of Christmas and what it means. And tonight... We're going to be in Luke chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, you can go and turn there. Luke chapter 1, uh, verses 46 through 56. Uh, we'll be looking at the Magnificent, which if you don't know what that is, that's just a fancy name for a song that Mary sings. Uh, and it's pretty neat. It's a pretty neat little song. We're going to be paying attention to it, looking, looking at it and what we can learn from it. Um, it's performed by Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, written and performed uh, she does a great job. It's pretty epic. So uh, Mary is a remarkable woman. She's amazing. She's, she's an amazing woman. I mean, God chose her, right, to like carry Jesus and give birth to him and then be his mom. That's a big deal. So she must be. But what we see of her in scripture is that she's full of faith, that she is humble, she is courageous, she is bold. Uh, there's so many things we can learn from Mary from her story to uh, this song, this poem we're going to read. But uh, tonight, as we, as we look at it, what, what I want us to focus on is what her praise of God shows us about identity and true identity and what that really means. See, the Magnificent, uh, in this we get a glimpse of what Mary thinks of when she thinks of God. And I believe that what someone thinks of when they think of God is the most important thing about a person. What someone thinks of when they think of God is the most important thing about a person. Our view of God, our understanding of him is the foundation of our perspective on ourselves. It's the foundation of our perspective on the world around us. Our thoughts on God, our theology, doesn't just contribute to your identity. It doesn't just like, you know, influence a little bit the finer points of how we interact with other people. Our theology is like the roots out of which our whole being, our whole understanding of the world grows and spreads and develops. Our theology matters. Uh, the title of this whole sermon series, right, it was up earlier, I think it said Bethlehem-shaped theology. And the point is that our theology matters, and what happened at Bethlehem should shape our theology. If you're like, theology, what does that word mean? Well, go back to school, right? You got the ology in there, um, which means study. That's kind of how we go for it. But really, if you look kind of back at it, like the two Greek words that are put together here are reasoning and God. And so it literally means God thoughts. Theology means like your God thoughts or the study of God. Thomas Aquinas, he nuanced this a little bit more, and he, he said that theology is, is threefold, really. It's what is taught by God, what teaches of God, and what leads to God. Last week, Brian Howard spoke about how Jesus being born, the incarnation of the Creator into His creation, is the centerpiece of true theology. That because now, uh, in, in flesh and blood, we have the image of the divine. Any thought of God that contradicts Jesus is suspect. Jesus is the anchor to which all theology, all thoughts of God can be moored. Theology is not just something for scholars and pastors to ponder or pontificate about. That's a good word, pontificate. It's not just for that stuff. It's for you. For me, I'm, I'm a pastor, but I'm not much of a scholar, so it's for me too. 
Theology matters. It's the matrix through which we navigate the complexities of this life and this world. Our relationships of suffering, of injustice, of joy, of beautiful sunsets, and of death. And you have a theology. Even if you can't articulate it, you have a theology. And that theology contributes. It defines, it is the foundation upon which you then approach all of these things, all of these realities of life. It matters so much. How you view yourself, the world and others, has been shaped by your theology. And to have clarity about God is of the most importance because it shapes our whole life, our purposes, our behaviors. It shapes what you think of yourself, what you think of when you think of yourself. I guess both worked. So, um, got to be honest, preparing for this message uh, was a little bit taxing, um, but not in like the, oh my gosh, there's so much here to deal with. Uh, it was a little bit more like, what do I do? <laughs> So I was sitting uh, in my house and out the window. Of course, I was inside because it's cold and it's been windy all week, right? Like super windy. So I'm looking out the kitchen window as I'm doing dishes and going, Lord, I need to tell people something about you. What do I tell them? <laughs> and I don't know what you get from this, but this is where I'm going with it. Going for it. Here we go. Wind chimes. Okay. All right. Cool. <laughs> I love wind chimes. I don't know if you guys love wind chimes, but I love wind chimes. There's something, there's certain things that I, that can be the simplest things that I just love. And wind chimes is one of those. I, I've made wind chimes before and they just don't, they're just, it's hard actually to do to make them sound pretty. Um, but wind chimes, something about the melody of them and that, and that they're stirred entirely on their own. There's nothing that I've done to create that other than put it up and just let it happen. It's so beautiful to me. Anyway, I'm looking at these wind chimes, and they're going crazy because it was all windy earlier. And I was realizing that our understanding of the wind has all the implications in the world upon the purpose, upon the value, upon the function of wind chimes. You can, you can keep those wind chimes. You could take them, wrap them up, you know, whatever, put them in a box in the garage, some dusty shelf somewhere, not hang them up. Or maybe you even hang them up inside and you're like, well, they're pretty, but is that really the purpose? Like, no, we're missing the point. They may sit on a shelf in the garage and have a long life there in that place. They're crumpled in a pile, secluded from the wind, so that even the faint gusts that come through when the door is open, it, it doesn't rouse them. They don't sing their melody. The closest they come to playing their melody is when is when they're knocked off a shelf or moved around when someone reorganizes. And I think we can all attest and accept that that's certainly not all they were meant for. A clear understanding of the wind is foundational to understanding wind chimes. What they are, what to do with them. Wind chimes exist because of the wind and fulfill their meaning and purpose because of the wind. Because wind exists, wind chimes were created and created in the way they were created. And they ring out with the beautiful tones that they do when positioned in the right place, where the wind can impact them and influence them. Without the most basic, basic clarity of the wind, if without the most basic understanding of the wind and in what environments it blows or where it, where it could impact these wind chimes, if we don't understand it even a little bit, we might just end up wasting wind chimes away in a box on a shelf and not experiencing all the beauty and glory and melody that they can play. Same is true of God on a way grander scale. Uh, way more meaningful as well than some, you know, silly wind chime analogy. What we think of God matters. What you think of when you think of God is ground zero for understanding who you are and what the heck to do with this life you have. What to think when you think of you. What to think when you think of someone else. What to do when you interact with someone. When you experience the ups and downs of life. When you see a beautiful sunset. The realities of the birth of Jesus, of that Christmas story in shaping our theology, it shapes us, it shapes who we are. 
And despite all the talk about identity and finding ourselves, it's such a novel concept for our generation to recognize that the true definition of who you are is revealed in your relationships. The true definition of who you are is revealed in your relationships. It's found in other people, and primarily it's found in your relationship to God. So as we read Mary's song, we glimpse her perspective on God. We glimpse her perspective on God, and we have so much to learn from it. So, verse 46... We're going to start there. Well, actually, yeah, 46. It says like, what does it say? And Mary said, that's where it starts. Okay, great. Now the meaty part. It's Mary who said it, all right? Now, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. All right. We got to do some setup, right? Got to do some setup. Mary's not like singing this song like and composing it in a vacuum. It's not like she's like walking through the market and going, oh, look, dates. My soul glorifies the Lord. Like <laughs> there's context. This didn't happen in a vacuum. So in case you don't know the Christmas story, uh, at least Mary's part in it, I'll give you a little rundown, a little rundown. All right, so Mary, at this point, before this, has been visited by an angel who is like, greetings, you who is highly favored, the Lord is with you. And the angel then goes on to tell Mary that she will conceive and bear a son who will be the son of God most high, the king on David's throne forever. All the language makes clear to Mary that like, hey, Mary, you're going to give birth to the Messiah, which is a big deal. It's a significant figure in the Old Testament, a significant promise from God in the Old Testament. And Mary asks to clarify, because she has good reason to. <laughs> okay, all right, I'm on board with this. How's that going to happen? Because <laughs> I'm betrothed to this guy, Joseph. We're not married yet. I'm a virgin, and I know how this works. So the angel's like, don't worry, God's got it. The Holy Spirit will take care of it. This won't be Joseph's son. This won't be Joseph's son. It will be God's. It may be hard to believe, but God can do what he wants, right? He says, what he actually says is nothing is impossible for him. Nothing is impossible for God. And even your cousin Elizabeth, who's super old, is pregnant. So Mary, in ultimate faith and surrender, says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And this statement of hers is so magnificent. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. The cost of this is massive. The consequences will be huge. They'll be huge for Mary. But the reward for her is so much greater than the cost. Participation with the God who loves her, inclusion in his plans and promises, that's worth any sacrifice. And she says, I'm in. I'm in. And so the angel leaves and Mary's left, probably, this is my filling in the blanks, uh, going like, okay, okay, all right, okay, right, babe, right. Like, you know, she's like, probably like, this is, this is hard. This is hard to grasp. I don't get it. I don't understand completely how. But if he says it, he can do it. If he says it, I believe it. She's on board. And she starts to connect the dots, right? She's like, okay, sounds like uh, my relative Elizabeth might have some experience in miraculous things. So Mary goes to visit Elizabeth and takes this long journey. It's like 80 miles by foot. And when she arrives, Elizabeth like flips her lid with excitement. She's like overwhelmed. And not like fake excitement, but like from the depths of her excitement. Like, uh, like extreme home makeover excitement right? Like those people are authentic. Well, maybe not the people in the crowd, but the person when it's like, move that bus. And they're like, <laughs> like Elizabeth is like pumped. She's pumped. She declares in a loud voice as Mary comes in and greets her. 
Luke says that the Holy Spirit, Luke, by the way, we're in the book of Luke, he, the author here, right? He, he's recording all this for us. And he says that the Holy Spirit comes over Elizabeth and she exclaims all these things. What we see in, in her exclamations is that, is that Elizabeth is like a prophetess. She's interpreting the sign given by the baby in her womb, who's John the Baptist, by the way, which cool thing that even in the womb, John the Baptist was testifying was heralding and preparing the way for Jesus, the Savior. I think that's so cool. Um, so Elizabeth, she declares excitedly, so happy, the baby in my womb leapt at the sound of your voice, Mary. Blessed are you among women and your child, my Lord, whom, I, whom you will bear. She's just like beside herself. And Mary, of course, this is where the song comes. It's at this point that Mary responds. Mary has come from this experience that is so confounding and exciting all at once, right? This angel tells her this magnificent thing and she's like, yes, whoa, okay, what? Like, it's so much. And she has had days of travel where, where she probably went from confusion and excitement and toggled back and forth and, and worry is being beat back by curiosity and she arrives at her destination and is greeted with this blessing, an affirmation of what God has bestowed upon her. And it is a blessing. It is blessing. That is what God has bestowed upon her. And so it's in this prophetic greeting that Mary responds with a song, with a poem of praise to God. And I, I'm honestly, I don't know, like maybe she's really good at, maybe she's really good at poetry. I'm not really sure. I don't know if she like composed it off the cuff, right? Like this amazing thing happens. She just goes for it. And like the thought of God and in response to all the emotions, she just composes this in the moment and declares it. I'm not sure. Maybe uh, she'd been pondering it and composing it as she walked the 80 miles to the home of her cousin. And it's just like flows out of her. Well, I don't know. But whatever the circumstances of the composition of this song, the weight and reality of the message is no less authentic or true to Mary herself and her view of God. So again, the first stanza of her song is this. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. I just realized I should probably, I should have figured out how to sing this because it's a song, right? <laughs> I don't have even a melody in my head. My soul glorifies the Lord. That was actually pretty good. That was pretty, I'm going to stop. I'll stop there. <laughs> you know, three notes. All right. Anyway, Jake, Robbie, Kenzie, Kylie, take it on. All right. Great. Anyway, it's a song, right? Not just, I'm not just, really, it's a song, even though I'm just reading it. Mary counts herself as blessed, right? You read this, and she's counted herself as blessed, and that's just wonderful. <laughs> she's filled with joy that God has been mindful of her. He, he rejoices in being, uh, she rejoices in being called by him and in participating in God's promises. Her participation in this will cost her greatly. As I said before, the cost for her is huge. It's huge. And many of the pains, she doesn't yet know what they'll be, right? She doesn't quite have a vision yet of what it means to stand before Jesus as he dies on the cross. She doesn't yet grasp those things, but she still can grasp the realities of being pregnant and not being married. All the consequences of that. She can be certain of those things. She's like, she can be certain that her betrothal to Joseph is in jeopardy. Now, thankfully, God steps in. He takes care of it, right? But in that moment, how does she know that that's going to happen? How does she know he's going to do that? She doesn't. It's, it's in jeopardy. Her social acceptability and reputation could be destroyed, right? A young woman, pregnant, out of wedlock, especially first century uh, Palestine. That's a big deal there, um, real big deal. The accusations and false rumors that she 
would probably have every reason to worry about. The gossip about her unrighteous behavior will be a heavy load for her to bear, not just for her, but her, for her whole family. Like she's not unaware that there is cost to this. Massive costs. The cost of the arrangement with God are huge. And that's always the case for all of us. Yet Mary sings this song of joy, of rejoicing that God saw her. He saw her humility and he chose her to participate with him. She hears Elizabeth's exclamation about the profound blessing it is to be tasked with this and the son she will bear. And Mary wholeheartedly agrees, yes, I am blessed. The Lord has seen me. I am so blessed. All generations will say that woman's blessed. In that moment, with all that uncertainty, with everything uh, that she could be fearing and worrying about, she says, I am blessed because God has chosen me. This is going to cost me, but I am blessed. The theology of Mary that we see here in these first stanzas is that God is good and he is worth it. God is good and he is worth it. If you question if the reward... Re, <laughs> reward... If you question if the re <laughs> reward, why is that a hard word? It's not sing it. <laughs> if you question if the reward, hey, that was easier. Thanks, Sean. That was great. Would be worth the risk. If you question if the reward would be worth the risk. If you mold the implications of obedience to God and struggle to accept that he is worth it. Does that sound familiar to anyone? It does to me. I struggle to accept that the implications of my obedience to God are worth it. I do. Maybe you do too. And if that's the case for you, as it sometimes is for me, that's an indictment of my theology, of your theology, as much as it is of my willingness to be submitted to him. If in your thinking, God is not worth it, then you are not thinking clearly about who God is. If in your theology God is not worth it, then you are not thinking clearly about who he is. God is good. God is the provider, the protector, the promise keeper. You have life and breath today because he gave it to you. Sunsets, right? Romance, pretty good. The warm-hearted beauty of the holidays, right? My wife uh, watched a Hallmark movie the other day, and it was about ice sculpting. And I was like, this is silly, but somehow it's very touching. That's all a part of God's creation. That's all the good that God has somehow bestowed to me to be so touched by that. It's a part of what he wove into who I am and who we are as a people that such wonderful things we can enjoy and delight in. All gifts are from God. Not the least of which is the one that's outlined in John, 1 John 3. It says this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. What great love the Father has lavished on us, I love that word lavished, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. That is what we are. In Luke 12, Jesus declares that even the hairs on your head are numbered. That's how closely God cares for you. He cares for us. The implications being, what do we have to fear when the creator of all things loves us that dearly? Mary's view of God as loving and capable supersedes her fear of what obedience to him could cost her. She says, the mighty one has done great things for me. All generations will call me blessed. She says this not because she is great, but because God is and has chosen her. Lowly though she may be, he has chosen her. And what greater blessing is there than that? The reality, the reality here is that God has chosen each of you as well. He's chosen each one of us. 
You have the invitation to participate and enjoy the love of the Father. You have an invitation to the great banquet hall where God sits and Jesus waits at the door to welcome you. You have an invitation to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit and manifest God's kingdom in the world. The mighty one has done great things for you. He's done great things for you and he's not done. He's not done. We have every reason to be like Mary and to say, I am the Lord's servant. May your word be fulfilled to me and do it freely, boldly, confidently. And if you struggle to do that, as I sometimes do, and this sermon has been a great experience for me in writing it, to come back into uh, to come back to the book, right? To come back to the Bible and have, have my theology reformed into the likeness of what he's actually like. I encourage you to do the same. If for some reason God's not worth it to you, you're not thinking clearly about him. And your thoughts about him need to be refined, reformed. He is good, and he is worth it. Now, this is a good test. This is a really good test of whether or not your academic theology aligns with your practical theology. You know, you can have uh, all the creeds memorized. Uh, you can know all the verses, but if it doesn't flow out of your life, that academic theology, that head knowledge is just a facade. It's just a facade masking some abandoned building. We're called to court not on what we thought about God, but what our thoughts about God manifested through our life. Does your academic theology align with your practical theology? When the rubber hits the road, do you think he's good? Do you think he's good? Do you believe he's worth it? Hey, let's stand up. Can everybody stand up? Um, and I have this really important thing that I've been thinking all night about uh, for us to do. I haven't. I actually don't know what we're going to do, but I think we should all get warm. Um, so... Uh, I'm glad you're standing. <laughs> so let's uh, do a little clogging something. Sound good? Is that clogging? I don't know if it is. Great. Maybe do this. Get some hip action. A little shoulders. Warm up. A little bit of El Guapo. Right? Shake it out. Warm up. Great. Great. Okay, now, if you're still cold, feel free to stay standing, feel free to move about, feel free to get hot chocolate, all right? Or you can also sit down. I'm going to keep talking, uh, but I realize we all need to probably warm up because I'm cold, so you must be real cold. Real cold. Jumping jacks. It's good. Push-ups. I don't know if, you, yeah, get swole, man. Got to get swole. All right, thanks. Uh, again, if you need any uh, other moments of that, feel free to take it. Um, if you're doing like high kicks, I won't be distracted, I promise. I am undistractable tonight. Undistractable. All right. Uh, verse 50. Verse 50. Mary's song, continuing, right? His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Heavy? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, we should do more like high kicks, right? <laughs> okay. What we got here? Some good stuff. Hey, there's a heater. <laughs> All right, suckers. I got a heater. <laughs> Dang. That's nice. So, sorry, you're not suckers. You're not suckers. 
Your faithful people who come to worship together. Way to go, church. Way to go, people of God. It's cold. We're coming out because it's important to be together. Thank you. Thank you. I'm a sucker too, if that's the case. All right. Anyway, okay. Hurry. Undistracted. Oh, no, I did it again. Okay. Mary's theology. That's what we're talking about tonight. Okay. Mary's theology reflects a God who doesn't just care about her, but about the whole world. Amen? Great. Thank you. Mary's theology reflects a God who cares about the whole world, who cares about justice, who cares about compassion, who cares about humility. You know, it's not uncommon to have um, trouble reconciling the, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. As if, as if they're like two different people, caring about two different things. They're not the same God. And, and if, if you struggle with that, if you've had trouble with that, that's, there, there's in-depth investigation and some, some study that can be useful in helping connect the dots. But one dot might even be this, this reality that Mary's concept of God is entirely shaped on the Old Testament writers. Entirely shaped upon it. In verse 50, it says, His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. God's mercy is for all people. The conditional laid out here is those who fear him. Those who recognize who he is and respond accordingly. Who, those who go, dang, he's God. Okay. <laughs> That's what it is to fear the Lord. It's to recognize his presence. I think so often like you get in the Proverbs and you're like, fear the Lord. What is that? I thought God was loving. Why should I fear him? Well, a fear of the Lord is really just recognizing who he is. Because if you recognize, dang, he's in charge, then you're going to respond with like, okay, <laughs> it's all yours. If you've never experienced that, if you've never experienced a moment in which you're like, I am nothing before you, Lord, then I question whether you've really, really recognized who he is. To fear him is to recognize who he is and then respond to that accordingly. He's God. He's in charge. It begins and ends with him. Alpha and Omega. All of it. So, fear the Lord. Where was I? Thanks. Right, the conditional is laid. Sorry, I got distracted again. The conditional that's laid out is I'm breaking my own promise. I need mercy and grace. Thanks, guys. The conditional laid out is those who fear him, right? Jew, Gentile, slave-free, man, woman, anybody can fear God. Anybody. God's mercy is for any who would accept it, any who would receive it and acknowledge the reality of who he is. And this is an everlasting commitment. Verse 51, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. Yeah, he's got a big arm, apparently. He scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but lifted up the humble. God is powerful. He performs mighty deeds. And even those who think the most of themselves have no recourse when God decides to act. Whether that's Caesar or anyone. God can bring down rulers from their thrones and has lifted up the humble. It's his to... It's his to decide what to do. Mary's theology recognizes the ethic of God is held together by humility. It's an upside-down kingdom where the last shall be first and the first shall be last, where God would take on human flesh and serve and sacrifice for others. Humility is the centerpiece of this whole thing. In Philippians 2, Paul writes about the reality of Jesus coming and what that meant of God taking on human form. And we're going to read the whole chunk of it here, Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. He's writing to the church in Philippi, talking to them about who Jesus is and what that means for them and how they live and how they operate. He says this, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. 
Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Jesus and God were equal, yet Jesus did not use it to his own advantage. That's remarkable. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. My friends, when we understand God in this way. Philippians 2. With a Bethlehem-shaped theology that, that God humbled himself to be made like us, to take on our limitations, our hurts, our pains, to serve us, not to, not to rule and lord it over us, but to come and redeem us and rescue us. When we understand that, we can understand that God is not taking advantage of us. He isn't out to swindle you. He isn't out to provoke you. His intent and his desire is to serve and love all of humanity. And his invitation is for us to participate in that. God is good. God is humble and he is loving. When you think of God, is that what you think? By how you respond to him. Does that reflect that you think of him in this way? Because if it doesn't, you need to have some refining happen there. Because he is. He is humble. He is kind. He is for you. And for your good. Finally, verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. God will care for those in need. The Beatitudes begin with a, a declaration that the poor in spirit will inherit the kingdom of God, but this is, is not simply spiritual, especially not for Mary, especially not here in this song. And it's not for God and for us to be simply spiritual. You know, throughout Scripture, especially Old Testament and especially in the New Testament, same God, he speaks the same way. The comments about being wealthy, now that's not evil, of course. If you have any questions about that, go back to the sermon series we did just a couple weeks ago. But the reality is that the independently wealthy have conducive circumstances for not having a need for God. And I tell you what, that's me. I may not maybe seem like it, but I'm, I'm pretty well satisfied with my income or my ability to provide food for my family. Like, I'm able to do it. My needs are met. And I think that's probably the case for many of you. You think independently wealthy, and you're like, nah, yeah, those people. It might be you. Are your circumstances conducive for not having a need for God? It's nothing to be ashamed of, but it should be something to be cautious of about how you respond to that. It's not a guarantee that you won't need God or you'll act independently of him, but it is easier to be independent from, from God when you have abundant financial means. Now, in our time, in our culture, of course, like, we have this caricature of a wealthy person, right? Like, this caricature of, like, a terribly wealthy person. <laughs> like, or somebody who is terrible and wealthy and they connect the two. I don't, I don't know. Somehow they're connected, right? It's this caricature of somebody who, who, who knows they are wealthy and believes that their wealth is the foundation to their virtue. Right? It's the person that's like, I'm wealthy, and that makes me better than you. Ugh. <laughs> Yuck. That's terrible. Is that gross? That's terrible. Right? We all agree. Ugh. Ugh. I don't like it. It's gross. It's so gross. That thought, that all of that, it's like it's just so terrible. None of us like it. None of us like it. If we see it, we're like, oh, oh, yuck. Like, I don't want anything to do with that person. We mock them. 
in any way we can because it's just so terrible. And certainly those people, there's people that exist that fit that caricature, right? But most people try to avoid the telltale behaviors of that caricature, the mannerisms of such a person, because we all know it's ugly. <laughs> like, it's really ugly. Most of us don't look like that, but could still be thinking like that. That our wealth is the source of our virtue. That our ability to provide for ourselves is what matters. That material self-sufficiency corresponds to moral self-sufficiency. But in every way, we're dependent upon God. In every way, we're dependent upon God. God rejects the person who thinks that they don't need him. Not because he's mean, but because they just said they don't need him. Right? Because they just said, no, I don't need you. And he's like, he's gracious. He's a gentleman. He says, all right, it's fine. You don't have to have me. We all have a choice. If you've been in church a while, I think all of us, our academic theology, right, would wholeheartedly, like, accept this reality of God that, like, we need him, that we're dependent upon him. But perhaps your practical theology tells a different story. It's something I'm confronting in my own life. To be honest, I'm a pastor, okay? And that means some things, <laughs> but it doesn't mean I'm free from failing. It doesn't mean I'm free from needing him. And you know what? Sometimes I fall into the trap of thinking it is. Now I can provide food for my family, praise the Lord. But how often do I not praise him for being able to provide food for my family, for myself? got to be praise to him. Okay. Mary, right? Right, back on topic. Okay. None of this is so with Mary, right? Her practical theology totally aligns with her academic theology. She says, I'm all in. God is for all people and shows his mercy to those who fear him. And Mary's like, I fear you. I'm on it. I'm on board. Let's go. God is in charge, not you. We are entirely dependent upon him. Right, okay, covered that. God is in charge, right? One other thing here that's interesting is he decides who to show mercy to. He's the one who decides who to show mercy to. We are children of a God who loves people and whose requirement of salvation is believe in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus and what that means for your life, which is repent, okay? That's a pretty big door, a lot of people can get through that door. Unfortunately, not many do. But a lot of people can, like everybody. Everybody can get through that door. This theology means that God's kingdom is open to all sorts of people. People I would not expect. People you would not expect. And no matter how self-centered a person may be, they are not beyond God's redeeming hand. No matter how, what political party a person is affiliated with or supports, they are not so far gone as to be disqualified from choosing Jesus, surrendering their party line for the values and virtues of the kingdom of God. And this is not a statement on one political party. Both, okay? We've got to surrender all of it to Jesus and follow him wholeheartedly. Our theology ought to account for what our Savior said in Matthew 5. He says this, Jesus says, You have heard that it is said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. If our God does not stonewall the unrighteous, neither can we. If our God is compassionate to those who have turned their back on him, so must we. 
She continues in verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised to our ancestors. So she shifts from everybody to now Israel, the people Israel. God has remembered to be merciful. He's remembered to be merciful because they needed it. (laughs) They needed his mercy so much. The history of the Israelite people, the descendants of Abraham, is one of fleeting faithfulness. So fleeting. They failed again and again and again, and God was all of the fruits of the Spirit to them. All of the fruits of the Spirit to them. Fruits of the Spirit. Let's go there. Okay, sidebar. So, fruits of the Spirit. These are the fruits of the Spirit, if we want to put it up. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Think about those for a moment. If these are the fruits of God's Spirit in a person's life, then I think we should take seriously the incorporation of these things into our ideas of God himself. When you think of God, do you think this? Because you should. We ought to incorporate love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control into our theology, our thoughts of God. When we review the story of the Israelite people in the Old Testament, God shows these fruits abundantly over and over again, over and over again. He gives so gracious to the people. He's so patient, incredibly patient. He shows incredible restraint. He's so gentle and kind to them. They're so wicked to him. They're so faithless to him, but he is so patient. He's so good. He expresses joy over them when there's no reason to rejoice in the things they're doing. He rejoices in them. And he loves them so dearly. God made a promise to Abraham that he would bless him and make him into a great nation and that through Abraham, his offspring, and his offspring, all the people of the world would be blessed. That's the promise God made. And later on, God reiterates the promise and broadens the covenant with all of Israel after they delivered from Egypt, right? Parting the Red Sea, Mount Sinai, you know, 10 commandments. All right, I give you these 15, 10. Okay, and... The people, Israel, that was a joke, by the way. That's from a movie. It's not true. Ten, there were 10, not 15. Okay. So the people, they're so fickle. They're so faithless. And from generation to generation, they failed again and again and again, much like me, much like you. But God did not abandon them because he had made a promise to them. The reality of God's faithfulness ought to shape everything about how we view him and his actions towards us. Mary, of course, is bearing the son, Jesus, who is the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. A promise that God kept to Abraham and to his people Israel, even though they're totally unworthy of it. There are promises God keeps to you and me, and we're totally unworthy of them. So when you feel unworthy, amen. But that doesn't mean he won't deliver. That doesn't mean he's turned his back on you. He's still with you. He's still for you. Because when you're faithless, he's still faithful. Because all the fruits of the Spirit, they emanate from him. That's how he operates. If you've turned your back on God, if you've returned to whatever foul well of sin that just keeps poisoning your soul, repent. And if you're like, I've repented, repent again. And again, because an accurate theology affirms God's mercy and grace expressed through his faithfulness, that he is faithful to us even when we are faithless. God has made a promise to you and he's going to keep it. He won't turn his back on you. Repent, go back to him and he's ready to receive you. It's mind-blowing because that's our God. He's mind-blowing. To know him, to have a theology that is true, completely reshapes us. It reshapes our identity. It reshapes our understanding of ourselves and our place in this world and our relationship to God and our relationship to others. 
Because the most important thing about you is what you think of when you think of God. Amen? Band, you guys want to make your way up? Um, yeah. I want to leave us with this one thought as they come up. And it's this. That just as the Spirit came upon Mary and through her bore into the world the Savior, Jesus Christ, so now we, the church, have the Holy Spirit upon us. He's given it to us that we might bear Christ into the world. What a wonderful thing. His Holy Spirit is the gift, the seal of our promised salvation in Jesus. And it's by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we are commissioned, that we are equipped for righteous living, for the advancement of the kingdom. Uh, it's by the Spirit that we, are no longer, that we no longer bear fruit for death, but fruit for life. We bear all those fruits of the Spirit, the things that reflect our God, the one who created, created us and rescued us. The Holy Spirit dwells among us, my friends. It's cold, and maybe he looks like our breath. <sighs> maybe, I don't know. May it be a reminder. May your cold breath be a reminder that the Spirit is here, that He's with you, that He's among us, that He dwells with us and has fallen upon us, that we might bear Christ to the world. What a beautiful thing. What a promise we have in Him. And we can rejoice. We can rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. You're cold, but rejoice. <laughs> we can rejoice. As Mary does, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Amen? Father, I pray your spirit would rest upon us. I pray that as a people tonight, your spirit would fill us. That through us, your spirit may manifest the realities of your kingdom. That through us, Holy Spirit, the love, the hope, the mercy, the faithfulness, the power of Jesus would be brought into this world. Lord, come rest on us. Come, Lord, rest on us. And do with us what you have promised. Have your way with us, Lord. We're yours. Amen. Okay, listen, it's cold. So here's the deal. Stand up. <laughs> All right. And I know last time it was a little goofy, right? When I had you stand up. Uh, I should have thought more about that process. But here's the deal. It's cold. You know what helps? Moving and dancing and shaking. Uh, you know, appropriately. <laughs> <laughs> Our God is good and he's worth it. He's worth it. May the cold, antsy energy you have, let it out for his sake. All right? Get warm and praise him. Go unhindered before him and let the spirit fall upon us. Call on God's spirit to fall upon us. Because he's good and he's worth it. Amen? Amen. Let's dance.